Welcome to Mastering Data, where we sit down with inspirational leaders in data and IT to hear their interesting career journeys and lessons learned. Each episode is packed with valuable insights and tips for those looking to excel in the world of data. So, whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional, join us and get ready to take your data skills to the next level. Welcome to the Mastering Data Podcast, the show where we explore the stories and experiences of extraordinary individuals making a significant impact in the data and analytics field. I'm your host, Aaron Evans, founder and CEO of The Intelligent Group. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Mark Jasudis, a guest whose career has been a testament to the transformative power of digital innovation, data, and strategic foresight in some of the most competitive markets around the globe. Over the past two decades, Mark's journey spans notable roles at renowned organizations like The Economist, AOL Europe, Yahoo, News Corp Australia, IAG, and he's currently at the Australian Stock Exchange, the ASX, where he leads as the general manager of digital and customer platforms. He is celebrated for steering digital transformations that redefine customer experiences and drive business growth. From pioneering digital media at News Corp to orchestrating a customer-centric digital overhaul at IAG, Mark's accomplishments reflect his deep expertise in digital strategy, product management, and executive-level leadership. Today, I'm so excited to dive into his <laughs> insights on leveraging data to fuel innovation, enhance customer experience, and navigate the complex digital landscape. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for the introduction. You're and very welcome. You may have that introduction as part it's, of your it's uh, part of my part of my part of my world. Your resume. I know you're not Australian. You nope. were born here. Talk to us about where the, it all began. The accents have been odd. Yeah. Uh, I've kind of picked up various nuances as I go through. My career started back in the UK at Media, so a media company, uh, where I was running a lot of their digital, building out their websites back in the day. It was like, I used to code, I used to do various odd things and bad things <laughs> with HTML and CSS. Oddly building the website for Internet Magazine back in the UK. Yeah, wow. So I kind of have a career about three chapters, really. I mm -hmm. kind of have a career around media back in the UK. So as you said, The Economist. So mm -hmm. I took on the role there of product, basically helping them to understand how they could go onto the internet, subscription, yeah, wow. all of that stuff. It was like, it's going to cannibalize the magazine. It's going to cannibalize media. Those were actually, real problems back oh, then. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like, there was like, actually, yeah. there was a crisis in relation to like, how accurate is this? How can we embrace it? Don't want to do it. Don't want to go there. Play. And then I joined second chapter AOL, Digital Native. Mm -hmm. So I joined AOL as in the media division. And a lot of the work around video, mobile was coming in at the time. That shows how old I am. So I always have this little joke about... We won't calculate. We won't fine. calculate. <laughs> I don't have, don't have to tell my mum what I do anymore. I have a mobile phone. Everyone, why do you want a mobile phone? <laughs> um, so yeah, we built out a lot of mobile experiences. We built out a lot of the experiences on the internet back in the day yeah, with... AOL, a lot of the message boards and a lot of that moving that transition into a browser because AOL was not in a browser. It was bundled. Totally. Bundle, unbundle is part of my career. Bundle, unbundle. I would join Yahoo mm -hmm. um, and we came there, um, Emir, Chief Product Officer, effectively, across all of their products, across 19 markets, multilingual, all those challenges, wow. multi-global, all the challenges of GDPR, all the challenges of advertising, cookies, how we actually monetize content around the internet, how yeah, we basically wow. scale video. Amazing. And Circa, then, what year yeah, was that? That would have been, so I joined AOL in 2000. Okay, so that was that digital 2000, boom. 2006 there, then 2007 through to 2010, 10, 11. Okay, so that was Yahoo. a real digital boom oh, and transformation massive period. massive boom, yeah. massive boom. So bus time yeah. in Economist days. In there is Sportal, which is one of my startups. I basically yeah. worked at a startup. Cool. Um, everyone has to have startup on their career. Of course. Um, Check so the box. <laughs> Sportal was amazing at the time. It was trying to do streaming sport across Europe at scale, wow. but without any of the bandwidth, any of the mobile technology. Kind of like KO today, let's say. KO as is today, but yeah. effectively back in the day. Wow. Before uh, it's time. Before it's time. Definitely. Um, we used to do a lot of things around 3G how you can stream closest <laughs> to the tower, all those kind of things. Um, and then uh, from Yahoo perspective, a lot of data-driven decision-making started coming through because we're basically using Omniture back in uh, uh, in um, AOL days, then onto yeah. Adobe and various other platforms for mail, search, et cetera, across markets. Amazing. So that was a big chapter of my career. I learned a lot there. I learned how to scale. I learned what leadership was at a scale team. In there's no remote team. There's just teams all over the world delivering outcomes for customers. The third chapter moved to Australia. Started at News Corp Australia as head of innovation. Fantastic. And 
basically poach a term gamekeeper a little bit. Yeah. So coming into a media organization, trying to understand how the digital natives were operating into an organization that's a little bit more traditional in its way of working, way of operating and its way of being. So instigating a lot of innovation type techniques, corporate innovation techniques like startup fund, yeah, scale up wow. media fund. Which would have been new, very new for the Australian market at that time. A little new for the Australian market, yeah, yeah, 100%. A lot of it was kind of like, not leading edge, but just kind of like fast follower. But Australia is, it's a follower. Totally. It's a laggard follower of most of the trends around the world. So because of the scale of the the country and the the actual, the customers are way ahead of the businesses in Australia. So one of the pieces of research I did before I came here was how do people access the internet off Australia? And it's something like, and this is a bit of Netflix data as well. Like Netflix had a massive sign up, as you know, in Australia before they even turned up in Australia. Totally. And it's something like 42% of the population was using a VPN to access the internet, which effectively tells you something. Absolutely. That their customers are. Yeah, crying out, I think is crying the Crying out for various, various <laughs> technologies. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so News Corp Australia, Chief Product Officer there, across their digital businesses, an amazing team there, doing a lot of API, enabled the whole business, built a lot of platform work, put in WordPress, all of that good stuff, moved into data yes. with News Extend and also um, the what they could do with uh, the data around understanding customers' behavior and how we could yeah. s- work that data with Quantium and Ambiata yes. as a business. And KO on the video side, yeah, a lot cool. of that work there. And then moved to IEG, who are going on a really big journey around purpose-driven organization. I really love okay. purpose-driven organizations. Yeah. So uh, Make a World a Sacred Place is a very good purpose to align to. Pretty good one. And Julie and Brent and the team there were building a lot of, like, we need to really fundamentally digitize and digitalize our business to be understanding our customers better, using yeah. the data to drive their outcomes so we built a lot of journey models yeah. there, as you said, like end-to-end customer journeys. Yes, um, definitely. To digitize the business. And then from there, COVID. Yeah, oh, that little thing. That little thing, <laughs> as everyone says, um, most businesses digitized very quickly. And then joined- survival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then joined ASX around about two years ago to just help them on their journey about how they could also move as a digital by design business. Amazing. Understand how to be customer driven. Because very much a whole different market for me. And oh, as you yeah. can see, I'm not, I'm kind of not. I was going to go there. <laughs> I'm kind of not, I'm not your kind of financial services guy. Right. I'm kind of, uh, interestingly, I don't even have a driving license, but Do I was doing not? car insurance, motor insurance no at, at uh, IG. Cool. Which always the team used to laugh on because it effectively <laughs> meant I had to listen to customers. Yeah. I didn't know the answer. Like some product managers, some product leaders kind of have this biased view. They kind of know the answer because they know the, this is how we've Subject done it. Subject matter, and yes, of course. So I don't know that at ASX. Trust me, there's a lot of expertise in that business that's super smart and knows entirely how all that works. Yeah. But how do we actually deliver that at a different level, effortless experiences, pervasive automation and threading innovation on top of high-quality data? That's what it all comes back to. Yeah. Hence why we had a conversation, Erin, because... Exactly. If you haven't got that, and that's my lessons from like oh, way back in the day, if you haven't had yeah. the good quality content economist you're never going to survive on the internet if you haven't had the good quality data of your customers and able to personalize experiences and customize experience at yahoo going to be dead search is all about data so actually you need to be really really smart with under how understanding your high quality data same at news corp again rich rich real amazing content Mm, and, and very customer 360, I would imagine, as well. Especially if you start right. combining quantum data and you start Correct. looking at that big picture. Correct. You start yeah. looking at the big picture and you look at all the brands that are there in the news core portfolio. You start pulling all of that into a circle around an av- for an advertiser or for yeah. a customer. It's very interesting. Powerful. So, yeah. So that's me. I'm a water rat, so it's the dragon year, lunar year, so oh. apparently prosperous for me. Oh, there you go. You're winning this so year. So I'm all about already. it already. I'm already <laughs> on a winner for 24. You're already winning. So, yeah. So that's me. Brilliant. Oh, I love that. That's a pretty big career. Like, that is meaty. Those roles are not, you know, inconsequential in any no, way. No, they're not. And it's also interesting. They're not inconsequential. And when you play the back to yourself, mm-hmm. you kind of like, oh, I've probably learned a lot of lessons in that. One thing I do with my teams is I try to basically, and conversations I have at various levels is I've made a lot of mistakes in that. Mm, so I'd you, love to hear about them. So you don't have to make them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you know what? And it's helpful though, isn't it? Sometimes it's- the most powerful learning and growth, as we all know and experience as adults, is the stuff that catal- you know, catapults you forward, 10 steps. The hardest things are the ones that are directly related to your growth. Talk to me about some of the hardest times that you've experienced and sort of your strategies for yeah. working through them. Oh. It's, it's helpful for okay. a lot of people listening. Yeah, yeah, okay. A couple of the lessons, actually. So 
One really hard time was actually at AOL, if everyone doesn't remember the 7-7 bombings in London. Yeah. 2005. Feels like a lifetime ago, So it? we were in the middle of it because effectively we were one of the biggest providers of news content, media content, video content in the market at the time. Mm. And actually, a number of my team were actually involved in the bombings. So if you remember a famous photo, there was a guy helping someone with a mask on their yeah. face, like I think, that was one of my team. Wow. So he came in, did that, Edgeware Road, then came in the office. I was like, okay, you're going home straight away. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. We had to basically focus and prioritize. Yeah, okay. And you had to focus and prioritize on the things that the customers wanted. And this was very much like one of the lessons is literally like, if you're not focused on what your customers need, then you are missing the point entirely. So at that stage, everything stopped at AOL. It was all focused on what we could do about getting information out to our customers. Yeah. And video was kind of nascent at that time. It sounds odd, but 2005, it was kind of nascent. So the BBC, ITV and other networks in the UK didn't really have a streaming network, but we did because we'd done Live Aid back in the day. So we built out a video network that allowed a lot of people to get more video content streamed out if they were remote from and and, uh, mostly UK residents or London residents abroad could actually go and get content and understand what was going on. And you know what, that type of engagement, which feels a lot more real, a lot less curated, that was very um, unique in in from, you know, a main news source at that Mm. time, I would imagine, but probably equally as challenging to navigate and to manage because again, it was relatively infant, you know, technology at that time. 100%. Mm. It's very nice in technology. And actually it was very, um, we, they borrowed our network effectively Mm. and Getting people to realize that that was a pro- how we actually used a lot of the Omniture data analytics to AC drive, okay, where were customers coming into our services? What news content were they looking at? And therefore, we targeted that upfront. It was basically a homepage world. Wow. As you know, Yahoo homepage and our homepage, two of the biggest pages in the world. Totally. At the time, we, we were effectively started also reprioritizing. So what it taught me was, if you don't understand what your customers need and you don't understand the insights and understand what they care about, you're never going to deliver a really effective experience for them. Mm-hmm. And that it's a moments like that. You can't have your teams operate in that cadence all the time. Totally. But that kind of cadence is possible. Mm-hmm. So then you can use that and say, well, it's possible then. Yep. How can we actually start doing, we instigated a lot more agile principles into the team after that event because they were able to basically like work against the Kanban. Yeah. We need to do it now. We need to prioritize it. We prioritized it based on customer, based on what was the outcome we needed to drive. It kind of drove a lot of those. So that's one lesson. It's fascinating. It's fascinating, isn't it? I'm tempted to ask the question around the leadership component of that. Mm-hmm. I know you talk tons about leadership and you know how important purpose and bringing people on a journey. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder if during that period, there was such a deep-seated purpose in that team, and that is what drove that extra 20% or 30%. 100%. And so have you taken any of that? Obviously, this crisis time, right? So that's, yeah. that's an innate human purpose. Yeah. But how do you and how are you now translating that yeah. learning into... To what you've done since, what I've done That's since. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's another another point on like um, defining moment, which is a very much aligned to how you build teams that are most effective. We used to do this piece at News Corp called News Foundry, which at the time was very simple concept around actually building a hackathon and giving people a specific outcome to work together on. But it was one of those pieces where you are able to see magic happen because the way that we constructed it was that teams had to have disparate people from different teams. So you had editors and journalists working with designers, working with developers, working with data engineers, working with anyone, from, uh, salespeople. Yeah. So editorial and salespeople working together yeah. on a specific outcome with an engineer, all of a sudden after 58, 56 hours, they were able to deliver something tangibly because yeah. they had a purpose. Absolutely. They had a specific outcome. They were all focused on it. Yeah. And even conversations afterwards were like, wow, mm. I didn't even know we could do that. And wow, I didn't realize engineers understood editorial and salespeople understood marketing and marketing people understood design. A hundred percent, these small teams took that way of working back into their teams. Fantastic. So that's one of those pieces where, yeah, purpose drives a lot of those outcomes. And again, IG, a lot of that work around, you know, yeah. we focus on the claims journey because yeah. the claims journey of recovery, as we called it, one of the, the steps of the value chain for insurance, in recover, 
that's where the magic happens. Mm-hmm. And Brent Smart was very big on this as well and in his time at IG. Yeah. We worked a lot together on how you can actually recover people because they're more likely to be engaged in your business. But your data in your business has to understand what your insight off your data. If you've got data, that's great. But if you're yeah. driving insight signals, much better. Yeah, definitely. Um, then <laughs> to you do something with that data. <laughs> yeah, looking at data as elegant is fabulous, but yeah. not very used to you. Whereas actually, if you can drive that insight to say, actually, well, hold on, where are our customers actually bad is happening to them? Then we can recover them back. They are more likely to be a more engaged, more renewable customer. It's quite simple stuff. It feels but that people way. people sometimes lose it. We've had this conversation around where the importance of data sits within an organization. And of course, your role is not titled data in any way. However, from where you're sitting, what do you believe, we were talking about data coming out from behind the the curtain, let's call it, and and becoming now center at board tables everywhere. How do you engage with data in your transformation and digital role? And where Mm. do you see it playing a role in the broader ecosystem now of the corporation? No, 100%. It's a good question. Because it is a a real challenge for lots of organizations. It is. You can get really (laughs) swamped into this kind of world of like, well, I need to understand, I need to, all my data needs to be high quality. I could spend years and years building a lake or a lake house or whatever else and moving it to- It must be a Ferrari. It must be a Ferrari. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Mark Twain has the best quote, which is uh, continuous improvement trumps uh, perfection every time or something along those lines. And that's kind of how I see data. So we've started doing a lot of work at ASX and we did a lot of work at IG. Dave Abrahams and the team did a lot of that work, which is yeah. kudos to that team. They did a load of really good stuff. We did this at News Corp. At Yahoo, there was a really big data team to, yeah. to drive high quality data. Yeah, absolutely. So if you haven't got high quality data, you can't actually understand it where it's accurate, timely, accessible, reliable, you know, in the right way to the right outcome, Mm -hmm. then data you can trust. So something we're instigating is around, and one of our principles is like, you deal with your data as an asset. Mm -hmm. So you deal with it in the right. Now, then you drive the insights you need to take actions off those. Yep. And then you basically build feedback loops to continuously improve based on those signals and insights to derive a better fidelity of signal, which then gives you a better chance of understanding how to deliver growth and understand what's going on. Now, that means if I apply that to any part of a business, finance, marketing, risk, sales, BD, my team in digital, my team in customer on the COM side, it kind of resonates. So you very simply have these principles to say high quality data to drive a better insight, a better signal that we can then use to continuously improve what we do every day. You put in a good place, and that's how I Absolutely. that's how I see data in my roles. It's like I, if we can get access to it, it's accessible, yeah. it's yeah. reliable, and it's trustworthy. Then we're able to do stuff. Now, if you can't, yeah. then you're better off not starting. And that was actually going to be my question. So you know, chicken and egg. For me, yeah, right, 100%. and I think there are so many conversations that I have on a weekly, dare I say, basis where there's these large legacy environments. Mm-hmm. They have been built with huge overheads and tech debt and all Correct. of the things, um, and quite often the executives are sitting around the table going, "What do we have here? Mm. Can we salvage it? Mm. And do we just pretend this is good enough and drive out?" The rest of the cycle, the rest of you know the food chain, that yep. being insights, you know engagement with customers, acquisition, retention, mm. all of the things. What in your mind are the the key kind of signals that that is the most important thing to touch first? What's the result of mm. how do you know you have bad data? Let's talk well, to I, that. Yeah, how do you know you have bad data? Basically, let's well, make it as, as yeah, simple as possible. Simple as that. Yeah. So, how do you know you have bad data? Well, there's a there's a a series of like errors and defects that you'll start seeing in the experiences you build off it. Mm -hmm. So if you have persistent errors and defects off like a company market page Mm -hmm. on the website on asx.com.au, then we've got a problem with our data. Yeah. That's a very easy one. Yeah. And if you're starting to see exponential errors in some of the systems and technologies you have, if you're actually moving your data around the organization, but in different transits, different transformations, every time you transform a piece of data, you're probably degrading its quality as you go through there. So if you try not to do that, we did this a lot at IEG. We had a one-way door decision around using Kafka to stream data across, event stream across data across the organization. Everything published to that event stream and then everything worked off that day. So from my experience layer, customer layer, 
I was able to know that I could get to all the data of the organization in a reliable, trustworthy form. You don't really know you have bad data till you actually build something off it. And that's, I think, the piece that I would organizations need to instill is you're able to do small experiments, thin slice pieces around the data you have, either to derive a better quality of data. So then for, you know, like we were talking about Amplitude, platforms like Amplitude to just understand, like unlock how is data being used? How are your customers journeying across your business? That piece of data could then be fed up to your exec suite and go, look, we did you know that our customers are doing X, Y, Z in certain scenarios? And how powerful. How powerful. Because then you can go, okay, what if we did more of that? And then you can do that in finance. You can do that in marketing. It's just a thin slice of how do we derive data and signals? How do we ensure it's consistently being then you know, monitored and updated? And then you can then scale those. It's a little bit flippant to say that, you know, you can't just, if you store your data in one place, it's going to be better. It's not going to be better. It's just, you need to make sure that it's, you have maintenance and high quality. That's why I quite like this, valuing data as if it's an asset. Absolutely. Which lots of organizations don't. They leave it in some place or they have their customer data all over the shop or they kind of do whatever else. We did a lot of this at News Corp about the data. It was locked. And yeah. we unlocked it and therefore the value was derived from it. So that's how I would do it. I look at it and say a bunch of small experiments around slices that basically allow you to see whether you do have high quality data or not. And then what data can you derive from those experiments? The litmus test, really, of all Correct. of those little bits and pieces. And yeah. I think it's it's a it's a great way of doing that, yeah. right? Really just pulling those pieces. And the smartest apart. way from an exec level, as I see it, is an organization that has a balanced scorecard or a series of outcomes or OKRs and it's in its, in its kind of exec suite that is, here's what we're here to do, here's what we're on, on, on the point for. Mm. Build your experiments and your thin slices around each of those outcomes that's on your balanced scorecard. Perfect. So then you'll go, well, actually, my financial data is not very accurate. That's a problem. You probably know that already. Yeah. You can then build it back up saying, actually, well, the measure we have is around improving our data quality. Yes. As a whole business, but mm. actually direct line of sight to everyone's elements of the balance scorecard, the people, yep. the financial, the organization, operational. And how does it score? And how does it score? And that's a now and then future. Correct. Right. Now, next future. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We have had quite interesting discussions <laughs> around the role of AI ML, Gen AI, all the fun things. Oh, I love those. We were talking about a certain report, the Gartner report, I can Mm -hmm. say it, uh, that came out end of last year and how they did the surveys and they kind of dug under the hood. Everyone's talking about AI ML and how they can leverage this and how they can use it for competitive Mm -hmm. advantage. The survey came out with 4% of Australian companies, (laughs) drum roll please, you know, 4% already. We had a bit of a giggle about it. We did. What's your thought process around this? So I, the reason why I giggle is because it doesn't surprise me. Um, <laughs> no, Peter I, like, Veal, I think I said about 5%. 5%. So really Peter Veal has a, has a really good piece from um, MIT on this in relation to businesses in Australia being ready for transformation or being like, and it was like in the 20% numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of go, well, okay. So as I said, your customer, most customers or most businesses in Australia are ahead of the businesses that are driving its outcomes. Yeah. And I think, one of the challenges is at least we're honest that we're not ready for it. Is a good place to start. Completely. Secondly, whether or not I think we know as a collective, correct. though, that's, that's whether we know what as I'm a collective. concerned about. No, exactly. Right. Whether we know as a collective and actually how can organizations help each other in this space? Because it's again one of these foundational elements. So there was all this conversation about hyperscalers and cloud comes into Australia and building all the various different regions and data centers, you know, and AWS is here now and GCP is here now and Azure is here now and Snowflake's here now and it's all good. But actually, back in the day, there wasn't many cloud providers in Australia. No. But that's like, that was a competitive advantage for a bit. But actually then it's not a competitive advantage because it's accessible to everyone. And I think the same thing will occur when you think about it for those 4%. Because yeah. collectively, as a country, we all need to be working out high-quality data to therefore be ready for something that's just going to be pervasive for everyone. So Absolutely. I think CBA came out saying they got 50 use cases. I could probably come up with 50 use cases at ASX very, very easily. <laughs> yeah. It's just how are you building those at a scaled, reusable, repeatable way Yeah, that means that, in theory, every bank could have those use cases. Completely. Then it, which no doubt they do. Which no doubt they do. But but everyone does it in their own little silo. I used to do a lot of work with the startup community when I was in News Corp and I still do a lot with Murray and the guys at UTS. And there was always this question about, well, Sydney's fintech and Melbourne's retail tech. And it's like, you're too 
small to compete with each other. Totally. As a country, yeah. we need to think about what we're doing with Gen AI. Collectively. So this is the collectively. And the, the, I introduced you to Tiberio, the Gradient Institute, yeah. looking at it as a scaled thing. Absolutely. Like, actually, let's look at ethics of a scaled Completely. way once. Yes. And apply and get it, it right. And to get it right. And you mentioned, of course, I've got this lens on with data. Could you? Your comment was, uh, you have to get the data right before we even go down this pathway. Correct. What do you believe are the key components that must be kind of a MVP, let's call it the, mm-hmm. the, the most valuable pieces of this yep. that need to be in place if you do nothing else or the minimum viable product? Minimum One viable product for, for Gen AI. I think you need to have a level of understanding around the five measures of data quality across the data you're going to be then applying a model to. Yeah. You then need to have a conversation around actually do it yourself internally first before you go open. So a lot of people are jumping on open AI and yeah. outsourced open source models, but yeah. you know, you need to the, build your model to train your model. You know, that's where the value, that's where the value add is. Absolutely. Um, and then you tune that model, maybe also against your own data, or maybe you can maybe, you know, maybe you, um, you teach it against the open model and then tune it against your, which I think is what Rami suggests in yeah. emergent. Um, but, I think you have to have a conversation around like how are you measuring the data that you're using against your model against the five measures of quality. Yes. Start there and then apply a model, test your model, train your model, or train your model, test your model, and then tune your model in a continuous loop. There's a big discussion about it's only valuable when it's in production Mm -hmm. because it gets much more scaled singles. One thing I think organizations kind of sometimes forget is that they have a bunch of customers in their organization. They're called their employees. So a lot of the <laughs> that things, is a good point. <laughs> a lot of the things you could do with yeah. Gen AI could be within a boundary of safe and secure by actually allowing your employees in a safe way to actually train your model and provide feedback on your model. Yeah, brilliant. Instead of putting it in the wild in your call center or putting it in the wild out on your thing. I yeah. think that's just that's simple, point. simple stuff. It's a really good point. And I mean, I think the fact that we're having these conversations, you know, a lot of our clients are asking about yeah. governance and ethics and, so. you know, understanding that actually we have a responsibility here yeah, to yeah, talk yeah, about this, yeah. you know, scalability of AI and where, does, where do we go from here? Yeah. And if we don't get it right, what does that mean? I find it really fascinating at the moment. It is fascinating. I think there's a piece to add on literally like one of the pieces on ethics and governance. I kind of don't know where your question was going there, but it's one of those pieces where people ask me about this. Like Ken, our GM of customer product he basically asked me how would you look at this in relation to ethics and responsible ai yeah and it's kind of one of those where if you look at the data that you have in your organization it's particularly around customer because i do a lot of customer data i yeah. cover a lot of pii and various things and the controls very topical at over the there. moment very topical <laughs> at the moment if you can look your customer in the eye and say you did everything you can to make sure that it was safe secure and dealt with as a truly a valuable asset to you yeah same with your model mm-hmm. so if you can actually look a customer in the eye and say i did all the things i could to ensure that your data and this model was going to not hallucinate not do all, mm-hmm. all the old things they do in the best way i could then you're probably on the right path if you can't look them in the eye and say that yeah then you're work probably on the wrong path work, work to be, be done. done i think that's the problem in that there is no precedent here. No. We don't have the templates. We don't have, you know, history and years of, uh, you know, watching hallucinations or looking at models train or watching skew. We don't know. Correct. So, you know, these questions are very critical. Oh. And I think there's a lot of anxiety around them. 100%. Great that you're asking those internally. 100%. Well, this device here, mm-hmm. back in the day when we were using it as portal and various other things, yeah. used to basically fry your brain, apparently, to some people. Yeah. But we developed a kind of understanding of how you, how you utilize it, how you basically use it, how it works. We've now got standards globally for when you go roaming for mm-hmm. your mobile phone. You don't have to basically change your SIMs in every country for different How wonderful is that now? The world. How good is that? <laughs> but back yeah. in the day, yeah, that didn't exist. Like, totally. There was multiple streaming formats. There was multiple video formats. There was multiple everything. But over time, to my point of unbundle bundle, mm-hmm. They consolidate, they contract. Over time, they bundle back. And I think this yeah. is what's going to happen with AI. It's all very nascent right now, mm-hmm. and no one quite knows. Completely. 
we have to remember that most of the gen AI we're talking about is a single use case for a single outcome with a single model. Yeah. We're not talking models that basically then have a world where they are general intelligence, which is a whole different conversation. Totally other, and yeah. people are going there. But again, it's nascent. But yeah. it will come. Yeah. You know, it will come. But yeah. now we're in a world where it's single task, single use case, yeah. single piece, lots Simple. of things back in the day used to do that. The adoption curve, I suppose, in that, Correct. right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's going to yeah. evolve and obviously people will be <laughs> early, mid, late laggers, whatever you are. 100%. It sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, not mm-hmm. going to put words in your mouth, That's Mark, right. but you do not believe that the human race is doomed based on AIML no. conversations. No, okay. I think there's other bigger things in the world that we're doing to the world as a whole that yeah. probably are a bit more damaging than Gen AI. Like, look at the summer we've just had and the oh. summer we had before. Totally. I don't need to mention the thing. Everyone mm, knows that's we know. a bigger threat to <laughs> our world C. <laughs> than that. Of course. Yeah. No, so look, what are we doing about that? Or how are we applying this to that? Then that's quite interesting. Right. Actually, All these technologies right. are super smart stuff. How's it being applied? Uh, we did some piece at IEG around modeling of, you know, lots of insurance companies do modeling around data and climate and, and how risk how associated, risk associated yeah. with it. That's super smart because that's using the technology and the data and the insight and the models to actually derive an understanding of risk and understanding what the impacts are for people. Don't build your house there, build it here. I'm going to shift gears slightly. What? We um, had quite a good chat about unlocking your roles have been very transformation-led. They have been coming yep. in to drive change. We talked about change as you came into yep. this room, and there's yep. so much resistance to change. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit unlocking and what that means to you within an organizational transformation perspective. Change is about, as I look at it in organizations, as I look at it in the world, and as I look at it in anyone, it's about unlocking potential, it's unlocking value, and it's unlocking kind of some level of power in some shape or form. Because... Unlock to me means that you're then able to open your eyes to another, reframe a problem, understand a problem better, unlock, like actually how do we get five people around a problem instead of one person just coming up with a solution themselves, unlocking the potential and the the group, like dynamics and diversity of a group is really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. And if you're able to unlock that, there's a lot of things you can do with it. So a good example in data world is what we did at News Corp and Miles and Adam and the team did an amazing job and the whole team did an amazing job around the one-way door decision around APIs of unlocking all the value of all the content and all the all the videos and everything in the organization to therefore make a bunch of two-way door decisions on top of that that basically meant you could experiment and various things. I had this real funny conversation with Greg Haywood from Fairfax um, around when we were integrating into um, Facebook and Google and like the fact that at News Corp it was an API enabled way of doing it and at Fairfax it wasn't an API enabled. So that one way made this decision at News Corp or the work at News Corp four weeks and at four months. And a huge competitive advantage. Huge competitive, but it unlocks all that value. But unlock is a good word for it, I think. I agree. How are you unlocking value? How are you yeah. unlocking power potential from your organization your assets your your assets your people all your technologies everything so when you want you know walk in day one to a new challenge which is usually laden with lots of risk and challenge and change and lots in that do you look at it through a lens of what can i unlock here how can you unlock something and what pieces and it's also how can that unlock as part of the system yeah. So I always find things. The inherent and legacy system. Correct. Everything's yeah. a system. Yeah. So, like the system that's there, how can you unlock the potential of your risk profile? So, we have a very low risk profile at ASX. Yeah. How can you unlock the potential of that risk profile to actually generate some change in the organization? Because hmm. you can. Yeah. Because you can actually say, well, actually, um, if we're better at managing our risk, better at managing our controls around a risk, but then if you've got a very good automated test team, you can start automating your risk controls. Therefore, you're better at understanding your risk. All of a sudden, you've just unlocked some level of automation you wouldn't have had before. But because yeah. you're doing it around risk, the ASX has a very um, large risk profile. Yeah, of course. Um, so a lot of risk, a lot of governance in the organization, which is right and, and needs to be because what we do matters and you need to build a fair equitable marketplace. You can actually start driving a lot, unlock a lot of value. So I looked at my team when I joined at ASX and went, what can we unlock mm. in uh, understanding our customers better, building a better experience for those customers, unlocking, understanding, well, more understanding about how they actually consume our products. And we're doing a lot of that work now around journeys, around our customers, how they integrate, how they drive value, and unlocking it for them. 
And is this a new concept construct for a lot of people that had been in there? It always is. Yeah, because of if course. you've been, I would imagine a lot of people have been in organizations a long time. A lot of yeah. people have been there a short time. A lot of people have different experience. The insurance company has an actuarial team, a bunch of editors who've been working in newspapers and only working in newspapers. They only know that world. They, yeah. they, they, you wouldn't expect them to understand the pieces that are in a different system. And the analogy I always use is if you've been bench pressing for 20 years one way and the trainer turns up and says, you know what, you're using the one muscle group. It hurts <laughs> to start with. Yeah. But then you're better with it. Good analogy. And you're better with it. It's a new concept for lots of people. Yeah. But it's also, you have to, I called it quiet change in News Corp, which was effectively like they need to come up with the, the outcomes themselves. Otherwise, they won't own it. So again, this is a challenge in transformation. Like transformation needs to be owned by everyone that's being transformed. Of course. Because if it's not, then it's just telling them what to do. But they, if no, they own the outcome and they own the change, then you're in a much better place. The how then, wonderful. Yeah. And it sounds so easy in theory. Well, in theory it is, but <laughs> it's people that always get you. Of course. Um, so you're leading this. Let's just correct. say you're leading yeah. this. It's day you know, 20 and you're thinking, okay, I've got all these unlocks mm. and I know I need to unlock. Mm. What is your go-to process in terms of where's the easy wins for you? And I know it's going to be different slightly. Yeah, no, no, it's different for different what's the process that you would undertake to move the needle in terms yeah. of getting people on the journey yeah. and working to unlock? Well, I think there's a, the first thing is is the people. Yep. You need to just know and understand the diversity, the backgrounds, the expertise, the capability of your people. Then work with them on a series of outcomes that are achievable for a period of time. Yeah. And then put them all together, empower them to deliver that outcome. Yeah. And then leave them alone. That's key. Because in theory, that bit, they leave it alone. 100% is key. People don't often do that. 100%. They dabble. <laughs> Yeah. So that's how you unlock and that's how you, you get these teams working together. Yeah. The one thing that destroys a high performing team from experience for many years is context switching, yeah. which is when you dabble. Okay. So you give them the outcome, you give them the tools, you give them the technologies, you give them the capabilities and you go say go. It's in a controlled way. Yeah. But it's actually against a, a plan of the whole organization that shows, well, if we can do it here, that shows we can. Okay, that means we can probably do it over here, and we could probably do it over here, and we could probably do it over here. Now, underpinning all this has to be foundational work. So you have to basically make sure you've got the right technologies, you're in the right posture, so you're not trying to do this with a bunch of old kit. You're trying to do this in cloud. You're trying to do this with you know, easy, configurable, low-code, no-code, customization, not build, that type of stuff. And is that a um, precursor? to the people piece. It's really understanding the legacy. Well, there's and two ways of doing that. Yeah. So it's either a precursor to it, depends on where you are on your journey in relation to modernization and simplification of your technology architecture. That's yeah. why I always love writing with an architect. Yeah. Call out to the architects that work for me. Work Absolutely. Work with me Shout out. It's only as good as, you're only as good as your architect that rides with you. Absolutely. I've got a really good one now at ASX, got a really good one at News Corp, a really good one at IG. So, you know, these architects are really good. You need to architect like your transition state, this is where the now next future yeah. goes. You're in your now, you need to understand your next. Yeah. Everyone can see the future, mm -hmm. like cars that drive themselves. Sure. You can probably see that. Yeah. Cars that drive themselves with people on the road, problem. Because totally. it's the people that's the problem. Now, just cars. You need to understand the the now next future. And then I think you can do it two ways. You can actually build the foundational elements to the level you need to. So you can build your cloud out in his own. You can actually have a data platform and then your first team that works, works against those. Yeah. Or, you can actually do allow them to build it. Yeah. And they'll only build a small version, a thin slice of it. Yeah. But a thin slice of it that's reusable, repeatable, and scalable for the rest of the organization is one of their goals. Yeah. So the outcome is so the outcome for some of the working we did in claims, and some of the work we did in News Corp was we need to be building the new set of mastheads, digital experiences, but it needs to be repeatable for everyone. You can't just do it. And for, that's the mandate. That's, that's the, the mandate. Yeah. That's the piece where you control what they're working on. Yeah. The outcomes, the mandate is I need to see it repeatable, I need to see it reusable. I don't want to be seeing like some custom here. I need configuration. Yeah. You know, I said custom before it actually meant configuration. Same Customization is a bad thing. <laughs> uh, configuration yeah. is better. So it's got to be reusable, repeatable. And so those are the mm -hmm. ground the guardrails you put around it. Yeah. Absolutely. Then you, then you might have a chance. Love it. It seems so easy. Yeah. But it's people, it's it's hard because it's a bit intangible. Mm -hmm. And it also has a lot of risk in it. Mm -hmm. So you have to basically go, I'm going to take this risk 
of actually empowering this team and giving them a specific different way of operating a different way of working and we're working through this right now at asx around how we actually deliver in a idea to market type model and you know, yeah. the team's done a great job of it it's not me it's the, it's the team it's someone else another team doing the work but actually the model is a repeatable way of delivering what we need to deliver for the for the market and the business as a whole same thing at ig same thing in news corp um that's where you focus an operating model is not your organizational structure is actually how you operate in an organization so focusing on the operating model quite important so you have been a leader for many many years and of course learned grown obviously have transformed many you know global environments Mm -hmm. who mentored you and what do you see as the role of mentor mentee talk to me a little bit about that has i had a i had a mentor way back in the day when i was at emap shane o'neill who just taught me there's some mentors as I've gone through my career. So there's Shane, there's kind of Ebe, who was one of my leaders. And mm-hmm. sadly, he's passed, but he's an amazing leader. He used to work at Microsoft and was the CEO at Linden Labs. When he, I, I touched him at Yahoo when he was my leader there. And worked with um, Peter Tono at News Corp and, yeah. and that, that kind of stuff. They need to challenge you on your way of thinking because you kind of have this view where they need to just provide you a different perspective on how you might answer a problem or how you might answer a question or how you might present or how you might basically go into an environment. That's how I see mentoring. Yeah. Um, and I is that by questioning? Is that asking the right questions? It's asking questions. Yeah. It's asking questions. And I've mentored a few people as well in relation to like saying, okay, what is it that you really truly are? How do you really want to be? How do you want to turn up? Mm-hmm. It's those kind of questions. And we never ask those of ourselves, do we? Okay. Really, those are existential questions, They're existential really. <laughs> questions. But like once you start thinking about it, it kind of changes how you approach a certain situation, mm-hmm. which is actually quite a good thing. And do you think that's a function of typically as high-performing humans, we would surround ourselves with a bit of an echo chamber I'm at t- times yeah. and you know, needing someone to pop that bubble a little bit and open the sphere of thinking. Mm-hmm. Where do people find mentorship or, I guess in your case, Mentees. Mentees mentees or mentorship. You need to just open your eyes to those around you that are maybe coming from a different background and maybe having a different thought track and a different way of approaching things. So when you see them approach a certain problem, Mm. you can ask them, how was it you kind of thought about that? So I used to do a lot of work when I was at AOL with a business called What If, which I think was bought by yeah. um, our boys at Accenture back in the day. What? And the team there, we did some work with Lego and it was really exciting. It was cool, cool client to have. Cool, cool innovation type <laughs> stuff. But What If actually approached problems in a whole different way. And it was a really diverse set of people. I learned a lot from that. The team were learned a lot from that because you were able to ask them, how, what, why, how do you approach this type of problem? Because they've all got different upbringings, different backgrounds, nurture nature is different. So they kind of, and then you can learn from those. So it's probably people around you. It's probably people you go, actually, I kind of look at this person and say, well, I can see they're successful. So maybe they're doing something different than I'm doing. Can I learn it? Yeah. If not, then they might be able to learn from you as well. It's a two way relationship. It's never a one way cool. relationship. And that's, I think, maybe just look around you and see actually who is it you kind of think about as someone that thinks about something a little differently than you do. As humans, we tend to gravitate towards those who are similar to us. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really good point in, yeah. in thinking about, okay, well, who wouldn't I typically have a chat with around this side or the other? Or why would they approach it that way? We're probably much less likely to yeah. do that. We're kind of going, he and I think the same. Excellent. We're mates. We can we can carry on and he'll it, teach me all the things. Exactly right. It's a yeah. great way of yeah. approaching it. I really like that. Yeah. And I suppose off the back of that then, culture as mm-hmm. a leader And it's an important thing, regardless if it's a data team, a marketing team, a sales team. What are your go-to strategies for, especially post-COVID landscape? Mm -hmm. I know you already mentioned that Mm -hmm. you were doing dispersed teams back in the day. How do you lead culture and build culture? Leading and building culture, I think, are, in my opinion, different. But I'd love to hear your your thoughts. So it's interesting you phrase it that way, because a lot of people do phrase it that way, leading and driving culture, Mm -hmm. because culture is actually the outcome. Mm -hmm. it's not the input it's about values and behaviors it's about how we turn up in the team it's actually how we actually operate what we hold true Mm -hmm. i'm always a big fan of operating principles and kind of core principles of yourself and sharing those with the team so that and is that transparent leadership for you? transparent leadership but it's also got to be clarity of leadership I was just with some changes. Congruency as well, no Changes going on on asx right now i just did a piece today around with the team which is what's not changing 
Because yeah, okay. that's important. That's a really good point. What's not changing is yeah. the team, how you work, what you do, you, who your boss is. That's not changing. Yeah. There's other things changing. But that's, that's helpful. That's People helpful need because that. that's in your circle of control, your yeah. circle of influence, and your circle of control and circle of influence is important. Because circle of concern, you know, Definitely. I can't really do much about that. This is a problem with climate changes. It's in circle of concern. Yeah, people don't quite know whether how to get it in this. How do I impact that? Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think from culture, it's about values and behaviours. You build out values and behaviours. You build like a set of principles that then drives a way of thinking and operating that then becomes your culture. Mm. Because if you start with culture, I need to change the culture of this organisation. Completely, never going to happen. And that, that's kind of what I was. Leading, I was leading yeah, the question, leading, leading yeah, the witness, because yeah, yeah. I'm conscious that you will approach organizations that have an established culture, whether it be good or bad. Correct. And, you know, do you lead culture or do you build and do you kind of go scrap it? Sorry. No. No. Cool. Because no. if you do, so it's there for a reason. So I, most organizations that I've been moved into in Australia, uh, you know, they're, you know, traditional organizations, if you want to, for the sake of argument. It's culture is there for a reason, and it's, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, It's just not fit for purpose maybe right now in the world we're in today. Yeah, That's okay. Cool. But that just means that when you think about it, it maybe it's fit for purpose. And yeah. some cultures are fine. The command and control is required in certain organizations. You know, yeah. there's a, that cultural dynamic is it works perfectly. Totally. Um, so there's nothing wrong with it. If you want to be a certain type of organization, this is what Peter Harmer did a really great job with the team at IG when they put in the purpose work. Yeah. We want to make the world a safer place and made it a purpose-driven organization. That instilled that you couldn't have values and behaviors that were very much away from that. And therefore, you have to then build it yeah. underneath, and then over time, it changes. And then you have to celebrate failures of it. You have to celebrate yeah. the success of it, and equally. And then it's like an overcompensation of like sometimes you need to celebrate something that didn't work and give it an award, yeah, because that then means that people know that it's okay to make a mistake. Yeah, those kinds of things, those kind of elements, do drive culture because people can see that. Okay, it's okay to, for me to... Safe here. It's a safe place. Safe environment. Innovate, all yeah, exactly. of the things. That, that, all those things add up, and that's building it up, not... Yeah, not down. stifling it from top yeah. down. When you go into an organization, do you mm -hmm. deliberately consider that factor as part of the broader assessment when you step in the door? I'm Is bit, it on I, the radar? I, I'm a little odd on this one. Anyway. So I'm a little <laughs> odd on this one. I consider it. I kind of understand a little bit where it's could improve i look at the whole system and then i kind of choose one where i normally go oh, that's not quite right let's try and fix that it's kind of also a little bit on the lines of you do consider the fit but being not part of the fit is kind of okay if there is a driving force to know that they need to change it for the world they're in today fair enough which is fair enough and there would be a why there would be a purpose. There'd be Correct. a reason. There'd be exactly right. you know something that people can get on board with 100%. and kind of understand. And 100%. no doubt through that process, there are the ones that will self-select and Correct. they'll go, "Yep, nope, not for me." Correct. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah, you could be the extreme like DBS where they actually park the bus outside and you're like, "You want the bus <laughs> yes. or off the bus?" Which is, I mean, that's the way to do it. But it's symbolic. It's, yeah, it's symbolic. Totally. It worked because actually, like everyone was like, "I want to be on the bus." Yeah, and then they ran out of seats. They ran out of seats problem. on the bus. It's fine, but yeah. the, ultimately, like you know, Paul and the team did a great job there. Yeah. But ultimately, like that was part of the, those symbols and those 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 elements that mm -hmm. drive a lot of the cultural change. So I kind of look at organisations and I kind of just know where can I make a difference. If you can make a difference in just making a team feel safer and more valued and better organized and more effective, hey, job done. Definitely. Um, if you've made some seismic changes in an organization, great. But it's never, it never takes one person. Mm -hmm. It takes – it's all a team sport. Definitely. And we don't have heroes of transformation. We have organizations that transformed. Absolutely. Um, and you don't have – if you have a superhero culture, you've got a bit of a problem. Um, <laughs> but, like, you don't have those heroes in the world of organizational transformation. You yeah, have it simply teams cannot that be. came in. It simply can't be. No. Same amazing. with data, same with digital, same with anything. You can't, it's always a team sport. It's never an individual. Absolutely. So what would be the defining moment in your career? That's a good question. It's a very good question. And thinking about it, there's probably a series of them over those ch three chapters, but I'll pick one from here in Australia as well in Australia. It would have been probably about the second or third News Foundry event we did at News Corp. 
And we're talking about an event, a specific We're talking about an event, an event, yeah, wow. effectively, okay. an event. We had them as events. We did Very one cool. in the old Liverpool Street office. It was kind of a bit roughy toughy. It was fine, but we got it done in the end. And then we did one in the reception area, or as you walked into Holt Street. Yeah, wow. So it was like, you couldn't miss it. <laughs> it was in the middle of the reception area for three days. Yeah, there's no avoiding that. <laughs> we had Twitter come in at the time. We had Twitter. We had a, a great guy from Japan who came in from Twitter, brought their APIs to the table. Cool. We had Murray Herbs and the team from Fishburners in there yeah. doing a lot of stuff. We had Pete Brad and his team in yeah. there doing a lot of work, good stuff. And we had, as I said, we had, I think, probably about 20 teams wow. all working against a specific outcome. And well, they got some videos on Vimeo somewhere for them. But literally, like, I was standing there being MC, and it was kind of this whole concept. This said team sport coming up with it. But literally, you stand there and see the creativity in action. Wow. In an organization where they just, they could have done that, but they hadn't done it. Yeah. And seeing, like, Elisa Bowen, who was my leader at the time, amazing woman who's done, done great stuff over at Disney now, she was just open to, yeah, let's, let's go do it. Cool. Um, Paul Cheeseborough turned up, the CTO wow. globally. All, all, and you kind of sit there and go, yeah, that's kind of defining for those people because all those yeah. people left back into their teams and were like, wow, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah. So you've actually touched and changed a little bit the lives of Completely. about 250 people. That's pretty cool. Which is quite cool. And quite an iconic moment, probably very visceral for you in your memory, I would it, imagine. It was, yeah, for memory in Australia, it was pretty pretty memorable. And it, you kind of go, it was exhausting. Uh, you, no as doubt. As you can imagine running these type of things. <laughs> oh, um, but yeah, it was kind of a moment. And a lot of people reference back to it. A lot like you still keep in touch with a lot of the team there and they, they can reference back to it. So that might be one of them, yeah. Very cool. No, yeah. I love it. Look, we have taken a journey from right. anything from data to quality to AIML to transformation to change to, you know, thoughts on lifting culture. There has been so much amazing value here. It's been enjoyable. I am going to throw a question that I didn't prep you on. No, that's all right. Uh, that's and it's, I like to finish it. It's my way of closing. Adam doesn't, so you're lucky. It's, uh, it's me today. <laughs> but I like to talk about a word that you would use what would otherwise be an, a North Star yeah, yeah. for the next 12 months, the year of the dragon, as you mentioned when yeah, you, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you first came in. And possible, yeah. what word would it be? What is your anchor word for this year? And what does that mean to you? I think I like unlock, as you know. Yes. So I might go there. I think my word for this year yeah. would actually be, I have, could I have two words? You can have two. There's no rules here, I Mark. think it'd be new cha new <laughs> chapter. New chapter. Okay. I think there's a chapter there somewhere. We're doing a lot of change at ASX. There's a whole new different way of operating. I've got new capabilities and new responsibilities that are coming through. Awesome. So new chapter might be part of that. And also new chapter in a lot of other areas in my life. So Fabulous. new chapter. New chapter. New chapter. Year of the Dragon it is. Lock it in. Done. It's, that's the one. Mark, thank you for joining us. That was a really fascinating conversation. And I know our listeners are going to love it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Amazing. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mastering Data. Hit follow to get future episodes packed with valuable insights and tips for those looking to excel in the world of data. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review to help others find the podcast. 